0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Just before two o'clock on the afternoon of the 30th of January, 1649, Charles Stuart, King of England, Scotland and Ireland, walked out onto a platform erected outside the banqueting house in Whitehall in London. He read a short speech to his attendants. He knelt and placed his head on the block. And a moment later, the axe came down and he was dead. It was one of the most extraordinary moments in British and indeed in European history, the public trial and execution of an anointed monarch, for crimes against the rights and liberties of the people. And almost 400 years on, it still arouses remarkably strong feelings. So Tom, Tom Holland, are you a devotee of Charles King and Martyr? Or do you think (laughs) the man of blood got what he deserved?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, I'm very much with um, Thomas Fairfax, Lord Fairfax, um, who uh, commanded the, uh, the army. Um, in that I'm a massive fence-sitter.
0: You're a Liberal Democrat um, on this.
1: <laughs> well, basically, so basically, I, th- I think that um, I think Charles was a terrible king. Um, he was obdurate. Uh, he refused to negotiate. Um, he pushed uh, England into a second bout of civil war. Um, I think he had blood on his hands. At the same time, I, I don't think that beheading him solved anything. Uh, and I think it was actually in the long run a victory for... For Charles for the monarchy and for, particularly for Charles's vision of the monarchy um so I think it's a, an absolute mess um and I don't think it's a, a kind of you know was he a goody or baddie you know whose side would you be on kind of situation it's just you just you know and speaking as someone who's living in a country that's <laughs> gone through quite a lot of imponderable political messes recently um you know you just look back at that and think well I'm glad I wasn't alive then and I didn't have to didn't have, okay. have an opinion very on Very
0: evasive answer, but it doesn't really matter what you think because we've got a genuine expert. So <laughs> well, hold on, Dominic. Before, before we introduce the genuine expert, <laughs> <Yeah>. well- <laughs> let's go to you. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Um, well, you, I mean, people who listen to our recent podcast will know that I took a very stern and robust line on the princes in the tower, thinking that Richard III did it, but he was right to do it. So yeah. um, on on this, I would say I feel sorry for Charles the first uh I think his his trial and execution was his finest hour, but I think they were probably right to get rid of him um okay yeah you know I'm a big cromwellian tom so
1: i do yes, i do i do so you you you're you're more Cromwell than fairfax on this
0: uh sort of i'm cruel necessity. You know, I'm yes. we—I'm okay. wiping away a manly yeah. tear, but at the same time, I'm saying he's got to go. Yeah, so so that's <laughs> th- that's the story, isn't it? That Cromwell um gazed at the uh the yeah. corpse of Charles, which First I'm sure our guest will Windsor. tell us is totally invented.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's. So our guest, uh, the great Ted Valance, who uh, came on last year to talk about Magna Carta, and now is back. And Ted, this—I mean, this is very, very much your field
2: at the moment, isn't it? Because you're actually writing a book about it, about the yeah, trial. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on the trial at the moment. Yeah. So
0: there's and only Morgan. really one question, isn't there? It's um after Magna Carta's, but po- the podcast. Ted, yeah. do you know Charles the First dates? <laughs>
2: I, I, I know the end date very much, Dominic, because you just, you just said it. <laughs> so, yeah, 1600 to 1649. And of course, famously, you know, shorter at the end of his reign than.
1: Ah, uh, <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> All of which badinage suggests, Ted, um, that you as well are, are maybe more on the Cromwellian. I, I of, think, uh, opinion yes. on
2: this. well, um, more seriously, I think, I think the, you know, there is, um, I was very interested when I, I was sort of, um, you know, uh, poking the bear a bit by asking your listeners, you know, what questions that they would like to ask, uh, about the trial of Charles the first. And one person responded, what circle of hell? Do the regicides currently reside in <laughs> no, this, would, this you know, have, would
1: this have been a, a mr capel
2: loft it, it wasn't thinking. in fact although, although <laughs> right. it was it was an it was another one of your one of your listeners and it is remarkable really given this is an event that happened in 1649 there clearly is some you know that that level of strong feeling still about it but i think it's a case of you know as thomas paine said pitying the plumage and not the bird. This is a man who was responsible for the deaths of, you know, tens of thousands of his subjects. Well, was he? Um, And he he, he fitted in many respects, you know, the classical definition of a tyrant. Uh, Those charges (laughs) of being a tyrant, a murderer, you know, a public enemy um the, the these are all charges that could be substantiated so he got what he deserved really oh
0: ted strong, views. Go, so very
2: very strong views but we should you know for the <laughs> point
1: of balance from the point of balance point out that absolutely that so so this is going out the week where his death is commemorated
2: <laughs> yes at church yes. services I, yes. at, you know he, he commemorated a martyr as, as, as he a, wasn't a mar- martyr. he wasn't a martyr was either well. milton okay, was I'm, absolutely right about that <laughs> <laughs> he's a, a faux just... martyr too Let's just I, I, let's really wind your listeners up, including members of the society
1: uh,
2: <laughs> for, you know. <laughs> okay, well, I, I think, I, well, we're not the BBC, so we can, we can be as biased
1: as we like. But um, just, just for the sake of balance, we should point out that um, we, we certainly do have listeners. Capital um, Loft, preeminent among them, who are very, very passionate about this. Uh, and Dominic Kapilov berated us, didn't he, for not including Charles I in the list of- The World um, Cup of Kings. The World Cup of Kings. So um, yeah. there is a, a broad range of opinion. Um, and uh, Ted, I, I mean, that, that I guess when we're talking about a civil war, that's unsurprising. Um, so could you, uh, for for maybe for people um, who, who aren't British uh, or people who are British who don't know very much about it, um, just very quickly <laughs> the English Civil War what's going on, on about <laughs> the War of the two, the Three Kings I mean it's so complex we don't even know what to call it Yeah, uh, in, let's call it the English Civil War for the sake yeah. of argument with apologies well, well, to Scottish if, and Irish listeners
2: yeah if we try and focus on England just to sort of keep it as simple as possible I mean that there are so it is a very complicated series of events and so many things uh, behind it and leaning into it but let's try and focus on a few of them w- one is religion and uh this is sort of you know the the aftershocks and after effects of the english Reformation um Charles I's religious policies um deeply anger and cause a great deal of fear amongst english puritans um They see the king and his bishops as trying to reintroduce um Catholicism, Popery, as they call it. So the changes that the king makes in terms of, his, 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 um, bishops make in terms of the fabric of English churches, the reintroduction of, uh, more of a kind of sort of ceremonial and sort of the beauty of holiness as, as Charles's Archbishop William Lord calls it, um, in, into English churches, all cause a great deal of fear. The king is basically trying to reintroduce uh, Catholicism. uh, And that is exacerbated by the fact that leading Puritans um, are persecuted by the king, uh, prosecuted for publishing anti-episcopal tracts. So um, uh, William Prynne um, famously has his his ears cropped twice as a result of publishing uh, hostile works against the king well they they they, 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 they back, sort of right? <laughs> they, they trimmed them the first time and the second time they kind of cut off the stumps so particularly galling for william print who was an opponent of long hair as well he oh, then yeah. had to grow his hair to sort of cover up the the, the holes that that, oh, that were left oh. there so the coolest um, cut of all yeah um you know the, the there's so so religious um uh controversies is it is, is at the heart of it and Ted charles's wife henrietta maria is catholic it is she's catholic uh and 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 so there's a great deal of fear about that and and of foreign influence as well um uh and you know that that that, that there's basis to that and as we see in the civil war in that henrietta maria is basically charles the First's chief advisor um, after the death of Duke and Buckingham, she becomes the most important person at, at court. Um, but there are also, um, political constitutional issues that he, uh, at play here as well, because, um, Charles has so much difficulty with his parliament that basically he rules without parliament from 1629 up until 1640 um so his period of personal rule or the 11 years tyranny as his as his critics call it um and and these are issues uh, the issues that he has with his parl- parliament around um his foreign policy um they are around um uh, the way in which the king is 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 uh, raising money and what he does with those who refuse um to, to pay the money that he wants, these use of sort of basically imprisonment without trial, um and the way that he is dealing with his critics. Um so there are already people as well who are seeing the king not just as somebody who may be reintroducing, trying to reintroduce Catholicism, but somebody who's ruling in a tyrannical fashion. And Ted, it I
1: mean the general sense of the war of, of, of the king against the parliament. The monarchy is much older than the parliament. But there is a sense, isn't there, in
0: which actually it's Charles who is the radical. Yeah, isn't he a moderniser in a sense, like a, trying to bring in a kind of absolutism? Is that is that right, Ted?
2: Yeah, well, the, the language that's used a lot by his critics is of innovation, uh, that it is the and they are very much casting you know, the Puritans and those who are kind of opponents of of Charles I's fiscal policies are very much presenting themselves as the as the defenders of the status quo, um, with the king, his ministers and the church. As, as the innovators, as those who are, um, trying to transform the state and the church.
1: And is that also the, the, the Norman yoke and, uh, the idea of a- ancestral English freedoms that that's that, kind that's of bubbling a, away as yeah, well? Yeah. I
2: mean, that, that certainly comes into play as well. That the king is, is, is challenging that, that those rights that are gifted through that ancient constitution. Um, and, and yes, there is an anxiety too that is linked to things like, you know, the Queen and her influence, that the King is trying to move England towards a, a European absolutist Catholic state. Uh, and sort of warning signs as well come through court culture too. So um Charles is, is you know, he's a great collector of art. He spends a lot of money on his court entertainments, these court masks, but a lot of this court aesthetic is the aesthetic of the the european absolutist court um and and you know the the artworks are artworks that resonate with that kind of political system and also with with a more Catholic uh church as well
0: just at the end so at the end of that period that you talk about the eleven years personal rule so before Charles. Gets into a mess with the Scots and then has to recall Parliament and then you're on the sort of slippery slides at the civil war. So before that, just before that, in the sort of late 1630s, is there a sense of sort of pressure building and people thinking that this is a tyrannical regime? I mean, the sort of broad mass of the public or the broad mass of the public kind of quiescent and just kind of plodding along.
2: Well, it, it's a it's a weird combination of the two. So you, you've got sort of there's no there's no kind of rebellion and so on so in one sense it looks very peaceful um and it then looks like it's sort of you know a a dramatic sort of unexpected kind of um collapse of this regime certainly in england obviously things are already going wrong in in scotland as as you mentioned but when we look at what people are saying so yes you, you you've got as it were um the kind of machinery of, of government going on and local government continuing and these taxes that are deeply unpopular like ship money being administered and collected but when you look at what and they're unpopular are, because they're being levied inland they're being levied yeah so this particular tax is un, is unpopular because traditionally it would have been uh, imposed on maritime counties and only Im- imposed during periods of emergency so when there's an invasion threat for example vikings yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, Vikings, absolutely. Um, so that but when you, so that tax is being collected, is being collected by people like Oliver Cromwell. Um, but when we see what some of those people are saying about having to collect this tax, it is that this is deeply worrying that they're having to do this. Um, that it is a sign that this is, this is a government which is, you know, operating in a tyrannical fashion. And Ted, I
1: mean, now that, the- there's a lot of kind of, sort of whenever any, whenever a government does any measure, people say, oh, this is becoming like Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they're, they're I'd be all astounded racist. if they were saying it then. Tom, is there a kind of 17th century equivalent yes, where, you, where you, the you, government you, does anything and people say, oh, he, you know, this is like popery. This is, you know, you, we're, we're you, all going you, to be
2: you, the you'll Inquisition. Be, you'll be pleased to know, Tom, that the comparisons are Roman. So this is, oh, like, brilliant. This is, this is like Nero oh yeah this is nero it's nero we've been guilty of that as well (laughs) uh,
0: there are obviously lots of points in english history where people are disaffected and 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 cross with as it were the government but often what they do is they say you know the king has fallen has ill counsel or something like that so in other words they don't say immediately jump to saying the king is a is a dreadful tyrant and the most awful person rp is it personalized in that way already in the 1630s people pointing specifically at charles well, actually, Dominic, could I... Sorry, Ted, I, there's a question from
1: Dave Walters. Because actually, it's about Charles's character, right? So Dave Walters asks, wasn't wasn't major conflict with Parliament inevitable when Charles became king, given his character? And would almost any other monarch of the era have succeeded in keeping more of the people that mattered on side?
2: Yeah, I, I think I think Charles's character does, does play um, a big role in this. So th- there is a distinct difference between um, how James, his father, operates and how Charles operates. So... Um, James is much better at, um, you know, allowing debate and accepting that there will be criticism, that there will be, you know, um, arguments about policies and so on. Charles has a tendency to see criticism and argument as, um, itself a problem. Um, so actually, if we look at his court culture, whereas what James liked was disputations where he could show off how intellectual he was, uh, what Charles likes is, um, is these kinds of performances, these, these masks where royalty appears and solves everything. You know, I mean, it's like the, 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 the fantastic painting of him as, um, some, some people may see, you know, know the painting of, of him as St. George besting the dragon. Um, and basically it's the monarch has solved everything. All disputes, all, you know, dis, dis, um, disagreements have been pushed aside. Um, and so he can't accept it when there is opposition, when there is Um, disputation about policies it's not something that he recognizes as sort of just part of political life
0: but in the grand scheme of kind of bad monarchical behavior i mean you last time you came on we were talking about king john who i think we all agreed is an absolutely terrible man and you mentioned nero yeah i mean charles the first defenders would presumably say he's a nice family man you know he likes paintings he's he's not cruel he's you know is he a is tyrant the right word?
2: So I, I, I think you know, it, in comparison to figures like Nero and, and King John, yes, absolutely, he looks he looks much much better. Um, but I, I think to come back to the question you were asking just before Tom rudely interrupted. Yeah, that was uh, rude. Sorry, the, sorry. You, <laughs> I'm sorry. The, I'm sorry. The, <laughs> uh, I, I think the so what what is difficult about the evil counsellors' position, which is certainly one that gets used, and certainly in the early years of the civil war, that they're not fighting the king; they're trying they're trying to actually kind of rescue the king from the clutch of the of these evil counsellors who are leading him astray. Is that Charles is very obviously um, well with Henrietta Maria, kind of in control of things, and that there is there's. I mean, for one thing, his his main favourite prior to Henrietta Maria, the Duke of Mark- Buckingham, has been bumped off. And there's no other figure who really replaces him in Stratford, his Lord Deputy in Ireland, to a certain extent. But it's really the King and the Queen who seem to be kind of running the show and dictating things. So it's quite hard to sort of say, oh, well, well somebody else is actually, you know, driving this and to blame. It's a bit, it already feels a bit artificial from that point of view. And then, when when you look at this criticism that's going on in the 1630s, you have you know you already have got people like Prynne, who are saying, albeit in a kind of you know allegorical and trying to sort of you know not immediately direct way, they're already making these connections between um, Charles and classical tyrants. They're, they're they're not sort of saying oh it's somebody else. It is already you know Charles who is the problem that is being identified.
1: And and the second part of uh, Dave Walter's question: uh, Would almost any other monarch of the era have succeeded in keeping more of
2: the people that mattered on side? I mean, could that you imagine... one. I think, I think that one is harsher on Charles. There are big problems that you know the the the, the monarch is facing. Any monarch would be facing, and 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 those are inheritances from his father and also you know from 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 the from the tudor era as well there is the unfinished business of the english reformation you know we we've yeah, got this yeah. issue of a church that is half reformed with I, you I, know significant sections that want it to become much more protestant uh, and others who who don't want it to move that far towards a more calvinist style uh, of church you you've also got the problem uh, created by um the union of crowns of, of of governing multiple kingdoms and kingdoms with very different uh, religious establishments as well but, but um, and you've to- got the problem of 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 the of the fact that the you know the financial stability of the monarchy uh has been um a, an issue through through the reigns of elizabeth and through the reigns of james as well but Ted, so it is not an easy inheritance couldn't the
0: counter be that as you say he inherits a lot of these problems from elizabeth and james um but both of them were unpopular at times but they managed to base they, yeah. they were more skillful and also his son charles ii faces not dissimilar problems and also is not executed so, so Charles is doing something wrong.
2: Yes, he is. The question as to, you know, yes, he has, uh, you know, inherits a lot of issues, but it is Charles and his character and his decision making, uh, which plays a large part in, in bringing things to this extraordinary uh, conclusion in 1649. Right. OK, which we we have have to get to. <laughs> yes.
0: Um,
2: so, <laughs> so, um, break, so,
1: yeah. so so let's just speed through. So so everything this state of crisis that you've brilliantly set out leads in the long run to civil war and uh, war rages between parliament and king um a, a, and it ends with the king's defeat. Uh and that looks to be conclusive. But um we then have a question from Stephen Clark friend of the show. After heavy defeat by the new model army at Naseby. So the new model army is, um, well, it's, it's new. It's a model army. <laughs> and it's new model army. <laughs>
0: Brilliant punditry,
1: Tom. <laughs> top, top, top 17th century analysis there. Um, so, so, and, and it's particularly associated with Cromwell. Uh, after heavy defeat by the new model army at Naseby in June 1645 in the first English civil war, why did Charles I risk a second civil war
0: against the in 1648? Well, that's key to this story, isn't it? So the fact that he triggered, he's seen as triggering. Yeah. So what's so going on with yes, the Second yeah. Civil War?
2: So, well, I think it, this is again comes back to Charles's character: is that he's always he's he's always trying to um, play his opponents off each other rather than negotiating good faith. He and he's always looking for a way to recover. Um, his, Basically to go back to um you know the status quo before the Civil War he doesn't really want to concede anything in terms of his his authority um and so the, the engagement, as it's called, that he makes with the Scottish Covenanters is, is a way for him to do that, to basically get out of. So
1: tell us who the Scottish Covenanters are.
2: So the Covenanters are the, are the people who have, uh, been opponents of Charles I in the 1630s and opposed to his religious policies in Scotland. And they form this national covenant, um, uh, uh you know, against those policies. Um, uh uh, but they are also monarchists and so um they they're also opposed to the establishment of a republic um and they form this this alliance although it's one that actually splits the covenant to cause uh to um and which which um leads to the the second civil war so
0: basically Um, am i right in thinking ted that after charles so charles was cornered at the end of the first civil war and he was captured it, well he gave him so he he went over to the scots didn't he and yes they, they yeah. sold him to parliament but there's a point at which there are basically i'm not massively clear on all the different factions but there's the scots there's some people in parliament who want to do a deal with charles and then there's the army who are supposedly answerable to parliament but have now got their own Gender is that basically the right
2: wing of the english people yeah that that that's basically it so the the situation sort of post first civil war is that the king is a prisoner, but he's a prisoner of different factions at different points, so he starts off as a prisoner of the covenant as you say, um, then becomes parliament's prisoner then in a rather dramatic and extraordinary um instance he's he's seized by um a very lowly officer, cornet Joyce, for the army uh, and taken into the army's custody. Um, uh, the king asks Cornet Joyce uh, what his authority is, and Joyce points at the other soldiers behind him. And you can read that in two ways. He's either saying, shut up, I've got some guys with, with muskets with me, or the army is my authority. Yeah. We have the authority ourselves. Um, so, yes, there are these three different parties. Um, and actually, also, the growing distrust between the army and parliament is critical here, because what a lot of the rank and file um in the army fear is that both parliament and also the army leadership are going to sell them out with a soft peace they are basically going to conclude a peace with the king which will mean that they're not protected from being prosecuted for what they've done in the civil war Um and and that is something that they are very worried about that you know that they'll basically do a deal with charles the and then charles the will go back on that and they'll you know be strung up
1: So, Charles, um, when does he get taken to Carisbrook Castle
2: on the Isle of Wight? So what happens is actually that um, Charles escapes from Hampton Court. And the reason why he is driven uh, to escape is important as well, because during the Putney debates, which are mostly famous for this discussion over the right to vote. Um, so this is you know, the new the, model army. The the new model army uh, and and civilian levellers discussing the agreements of the people these, these and the case of the army, these radical documents, talking about, you know, every man having the right to vote, the poorest he is, has as much a life to live as the greatest he, as Thomas Rainsborough says. Um, but what also gets discussed at Putney is what to do with the king. And a couple of officers, one of whom Thomas Harrison goes on to become a regicide himself, call Charles the first. Yeah, friend of the show. Thomas
1: Harrison. Because he's the one who, um, we mentioned in the, um, yes, dies
2: very cheerfully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. um, yeah. Uh, so he's a fifth monarchist man, fifth monarchist. Uh, he says he calls Charles the first a man of blood and says that the king must be proceeded against as a man of blood. Um, so there is already talk. Uh, late 1647 in the army about putting the king on trial. Um, And Charles hears about this via John Lilburn, who is a prisoner in the tower at this point in time, but a prisoner with royalist prisoners. And word reaches Charles I at Hampton Court about, you know, these kinds of statements that are being made about his fate and decides it's time to do a runner, basically, and not, you know, leave Uh, But at that
0: point, Ted, that must be a very... Is that not perceived why generally it's a very extreme and radical position to, to try and execute the king? Because the Second Civil War hasn't happened, so Charles hasn't completely, sort of, as it were, disgraced himself further yet. So, do most people in the army and in parliament think, well, that's bonkers, we're obviously not going to try him? Or, or are there quite a lot of, lots of people who say, no, that's right, he's got to go?
2: So in terms of the army leadership, you're, you're right. And Cromwell is actually arg- argues against Harrison. He says, and they basically have an argument over the biblical interpretation. So this phrase, man of blood is, is rooted in the Old Testament, it's rooted in book of Genesis and book of Numbers. You know, it's the idea that, um, basically he who spills blood uh, the guilt of that blood must be assuaged by the shedding of, 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 of the murderer's blood, um, in order to assuage God's wrath. Um, but what Cromwell says in answer to Harrison is, no, 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 there's, there's different ways of interpreting that text. And actually it's a text that can be about moral admonition rather than, you know, putting people to death. So certainly the army leadership at this point in time is trying to, Argue against that view, but you can see, even you know, in the immediate aftermath of the first civil war, growing anger amongst the rank and file. There, there are members of the rank and file who reportedly refer to Charles as Ahab as well, uh, making Henrietta Maria his Jezebel too. So that the, there is already in the wake of the first civil war that level of anger against him, and a way of seeing him as this sort of wicked king who must be done away with
0: so it's actually incredibly foolish of charles to then take the decisions like running away plot plotting behaving badly
2: (laughs) so yeah again it's a bad decision to go to the isle of wight he decides to flee to the isle of wight because he thinks that the governor there um robert hammond is sympathetic to him and and will help him escape uh to to the continent but in fact he doesn't do that and, and locks him up there uh, and, and he's car- really cr-
1: Carisbrook Castle.
2: Carisbrook Castle. He, and he makes a couple of attempts to, to escape from Carisbrook car- Castle. You have a window are, that he
1: which, tried which, to which, get through, it's still there.
2: Yes, which are comically unsuccessful. He gets stuck in the window. Yeah. Uh, and the second attempt, <laughs> he's, he's, he's trying to, um, uh, he's got nitric acid and a hacksaw and he tries to sort of trying to cut open the bars and gets caught halfway, you know, in, in, in mid sort of hack.
0: But fair <laughs> <it's>, to <it's laughs> Charles, I mean, he's got no, <laughs> prior experience of escape no attempts, he's, he's not right? that's fair i mean he's just been sitting around watching uh, masks
2: the- and yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> an experienced uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. jailbreaker he's not a kind of houdini <laughs> houdini figure not a jack shepherd <laughs> no. so, so so he's he's in carisbrook
1: castle failing to escape and meanwhile yeah. w- what is happening with with the the return of england to civil
2: war so, yes, yeah, so he's he's in Carisberg, Um He's entered into this engagement. Um, as soon as the news of the, the engagement uh, reaches Parliament, which has been, you know, trying to negotiate with the king, it breaks off these negotiations. So the
0: engagement, sorry, is with the Scots? Is, is right? with the Scottish
2: yeah. Covenanters. Uh, and issues a very remarkable declaration that it will have no further addresses from the king that we know further personal treaty for the king uh, in which declaration it accuses Charles of all sorts of terrible crimes including uh covering up the murder of his father James I uh, by the Duke of Buckingham uh, through the use of poisons so it entertains the most extraordinary conspiracy theories uh, about the king so that seems to sort of you know make things look even worse for Charles I, that Parliament is making these kinds of statements. The Second Civil War itself, uh, goes very badly, uh, for the Royalists and the Covenanters. So there are risings in Wales, there are risings, uh, in Kent. They're the most serious ones. Um, there's a Covenanter invasion, um, uh, the covenants are crushed at the Battle of Preston um, by Cromwell's forces. Uh, it's also Cromwell who suppresses the rebellion in, in Wales. Fairfax suppresses the rebellion in Kent. There's a really nasty siege uh, in Colchester, um uh, which uh, Fairfax is also in command of finally um, is is uh, 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 they surrender at the end of August uh, 1648 and two of the royalist commanders are summarily executed um, which is again a sign of how things have hardened attitudes have hardened during the course of this conflict so the royalists are defeated um and I think that's, there are some really, the Second Civil War is really pivotal in this because it does um something really important, which is it changes the attitude of the army command. So whereas I said in, in you know, in Putney, we've got Cromwell arguing against, uh, you know, prosecuting the king. I think by the end of the, of the Second Civil War, he has become convinced that Charles has to be Prosecuted, He says that, you know, Charles is a man against whom the Lord has witnessed. You know, God has made his judgment against the king. Um, and now it is time that, that the king is, is dealt with. Just before we carry on,
1: I think it's time for a quick break. In the name of God, go. Hello, welcome back to part Two of today's episode of The Rest is History. We are discussing Charles I, his trial, his execution with Professor Ted Valence. The Royalists have been now conclusively and decisively and publicly defeated in the eyes of god that that's how that's how the I guess everyone on the parliamentarian side sees it, but the problem remains that the king is not the kind of man to accept compromise. Yes. So, so I guess that there are various options. One, you try and persuade the King to accept the the kind of compromises that you as a parliamentarian want. That presumably doesn't work well because Charles is digging his heels in. He feels that God wants him to defend bishops and all the kind of, all that kind of stuff. So there's no, there's no real prospect of negotiation there. The other option uh, I mean, one that, that has happened throughout English history is that where you have a problematic king, whether it's Richard II or Henry VI or whatever, you dispose of him and you come up with an, a new king. Is there no thought of doing that?
2: Yeah, there certainly is thought of doing that. Um, so the the most likely candidate for that option that you're talking about is uh, Charles's youngest son, Henry. Um, and Henry is in parli- Parliament's custody and at he's this eight, point,
1: isn't
2: he? yeah. So, so, so the thinking is that he could be, he's, he's young enough that he could be sort of trained up to be a sort of parliamentarian puppet yeah. king, you know, with, with very limited power, if any power. Um, but that, that is certainly one option that seems to be being entertained and actually is possibly still being entertained after the king is executed because, you know, Henry remains, um, in parliament's custody. Uh, after the execution. Um, and, and
1: he does uh, actually become a kind of very hot Protestant, doesn't he? Kind
2: yeah. Of, he, so. is, he ends up
1: with his mother and they can't get on at all. <laughs> so, so why why do they not go with him?
2: Um, well, I, I, I think ultimately um, the, I mean, I the think there's a few things here. One, obviously we, we, we move as we go through the 1650s into a situation where effectively it becomes a kind of Cromwellian dynasty instead and so Mm. so that you know we're moving away um from that i think the other thing is that there there is um a sense in which this becomes about more than doing away with a wicked king
1: yeah and and that's the third option isn't it that you you decide that this it's not just the king that's been judged but the whole institution of monarchy it
2: is monarchy that is the problem it is it is the monarchy fundamentally leads to this sort of corrupt oppressive form of government but that
1: is a very 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 radical position i mean it's not a position i mean i don't know how many people held that position at the start of the civil war in the early 1640s but not many i would have thought um yeah and it how, how radical a position is is it in you know in the in the summer of 1648 as the the, the commanders of the army are, are trying to work out what to do. How 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 radical a position is that in the context of England as a whole?
2: Yes, it remains a very radical position. It remains it remains a very radical position, um, and I I think it's you know it, it it's even more radical because at this point in time it is increasingly we're, we're not talking about the kind of aristocratic republicanism. That, you know, could be in seen. as or- Yeah, a, v- a Venetian form of republicanism. It is a republicanism that is, is being grounded in ideas of popular sovereignty. There's a kind of leveler infused republicanism. And so there's, there's a great deal of anxiety about that. I mean, just as an example of this, um, uh, the, the, the royalist diarist John Evelyn um, sneaks into the Whitehall debates of December 1648 um which is the army sitting again with civilian levellers um discussing, you know, what to do, and how to settle the kingdom. Um and he's he talks about the horrid villainies that are discussed at the Whitehall mm. debates. So he's he's shocked by the matter of what is being discussed. But the thing that also really shocks him is the what he describes as the raw, ill mannered young men who are speaking there. So what Evelyn is also the momentum. Sca- is scandalized by is momentum is, yeah. is is by the fact that these are young men young lower class men who are speaking to their social betters as if there were no distinctions of class between them who are speaking as if there there's nothing that should stop them uh, yeah. from, from you know, taking control.
0: And is that what makes this different from, say, if a similar event had happened 100 years previously? I mean, you had, I don't know, the Pilgrimage of Grace or something, where there's a kind of real culture of kind of deference still to Henry VIII, even though people are outraged by his religious policy. Is that something that has changed by the – partly because of, I don't know, is it because of literacy and prints and uh, yeah. all these yeah. kinds of things?
2: Yeah, I, I think so, because and, – and I think that is something where – um, the, the civil war itself because of the things that you're talking about in terms of the explosion of sort of printed news reporting this this sort of greater literacy to kind of absorb that material um this is something where there has been a kind of real radicalizing effect on on the population particularly on on people on on soldiers within the new, the new model army um over the course of the 1640s
1: right so so Ted, could we could we now go into the process by which charles is brought to trial and then ultimately to the block um yeah. so while while Cromwell is away the army are, are basically kind of self-radicalizing perhaps and they and they come up with something called the, the um the remonstrance of General Fairfax and the Council of Officers um so w- w- just tell us what that is because that's very important isn't it
2: it is it is so it, it's largely drafted by Henry Ireton uh, Cromwell's Cromwell's son son in law uh, also a significant um, le- you know leader of the the new model army um but with input from the some of these civilian levelers as, as well and it is a lengthy kind of indictment of charles uh, and it demands that um effectively it demands that the king should be uh, brought to justice now this is a very Long document as well, is about it's about 25,000 words. It's read in full to Parliament, so it takes several hours to do <laughs> that. To be fun. As you can manage the other yeah. few MPs probably nodding off during the, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, during the reading. Although I um, suppose,
1: I mean, it's so explosive in its implications that perhaps.
2: Yes. Yes. Blimey. So, yeah. So, so there, yes, I think, I think probably attention was, 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 you know, there wasn't any problem with that during, during the reading. Um, and, you know, it, it is met with, with great consternation, uh, by Parliament it becomes very clear that Parliament is not going to, um, accept, uh, that call to bring the King to justice. Um, and so that then moves the army to uh, another solution which is basically to purge Parliament of those members who are not going to support bringing the King to trial in what's known as Pride's purge. After the commander, Thomas Pride, who, with his guard of um, uh, troops, prevents um, these, these MPs who've been identified as moderates from entering, to the, entering the chamber. Some of them are just dismissed and some of them are put into custody.
0: So this is basically a coup. I mean, that's yeah. what it is.
2: Yes, and and it is also something I think we should we should emphasise that actually been talked about in the army as well before. So it is not the army figures in the army have been talking about purging parliament for some time because, as I said, parliament had become seen as being increasingly suspect as well. That and it and was how too do soft they the
0: how special. do they justify that, Ted? Because they can't claim there is any constitutional basis. Do they claim is there a kind of religious justification for it that they're doing God's work or something?
2: No, I think that the justification is primarily political, and it is that these MPs are of suspect loyalty. That these MPs are people who are, you know, disaffected, um, so, so, who are who are quasi royalist.
1: So would it be, would it be fair to say that I mean, the, the trial of Charles I, that that in a way, it's it's not really about his crimes, whether he's guilty of crimes, where, even whether he should be put to death, but it's about who has political legitimacy where what the source of political legitimacy is and that's that's essentially what's at stake and anyone who stands in the way of um the army declaring that they have the political legitimacy basically have to be purged whether it's the monarchy or whether it's uh traditionalist parliamentarians
2: yeah and the the that's made very clear in a declaration of the commons on january the 4th where they basically say you know we are the sovereign power as representatives of the people um, not the king, not the lords. Now, there's an expedient reason for this, which is that the lords, you know, despite all of this purging, the lords still refuse um to to pass the legislation to create this new court that is going to try the king. And so the commons respond with this declaration where they say, well, we're supreme anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but it's also, I think, something that is coming out of all of these years of discussion uh all these leveler ideas um the kind of radical ideas that yeah. are coming out of the army rank and file that actually it's the people who are supreme so it so on the 4th of january um
1: they say the people are under god the original of all just power that the commons of england in parliament assembled being chosen by and representing the people have the supreme power in this nation and that's the kind of the key isn't it it's,
0: yeah
1: that's yes. the justification and the yes. army is casting itself as what the kind of the armed wing.
2: yeah Oh, the British yes. people, yes. on, yeah. and you know, in practical terms, they they do have you know much greater claim to be representative than the House of Commons does, yeah. even or you know, or certainly because the House of yeah. Lords. So yes, yeah. Yeah.
1: and and on the um, there's this, this uh, prophetess from Abingdon, um, Elizabeth Poole. yes, who who is who is who is? I mean, she's you know, kind of humble background, who nevertheless declares to be uh speaking the truths of god and she's brought up isn't she and kind of very seriously consulted and so she's that's a kind of um i mean what's going on there because that seems quite is that expressive of a re- an anxiety that maybe god's will does need to be
2: scoped? yes yeah think, um, yeah to- totally so i think they're you know they're, they're willing to give this 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 um this woman an audience because they are desperately keen to understand what God's providence, you know, kind of theological focus group. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. And, and, and she says, yeah, bring him to try, but don't kill him
0: basically. basically. So, so that, so at that point, right Ted, that parliament's been purged. The army leadership have been radicalized. They've all decided on the trial at that point, when they're talking about a trial, is there even the slightest doubt in their mind that he will be found guilty? I mean, is it, is it, a, a, is it basically a show trial from the beginning or do they genuinely think, well, maybe he'd be acquitted? Who knows?
2: Yeah. So obviously this has been a, a major kind of source of debate, um, among historians. And, uh, my feeling is that though that there isn't, really any i I don't think there's any doubt that that charles is going to be found guilty personally um it's interesting to look at the trials that happen um in february of 1649 so after charles has tried basically other royalist commanders are put on trial before the same body the high court of justice um and unlike charles all of those defendants actually recognize the court and enter pleas they all plead that they're not guilty they're all found guilty (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> right you know
1: yeah they're I mean, wasting their their fa- time. What, and what is their
2: fate uh well this is so this is interesting and this is where perhaps i think there is more wriggle room three of them are executed but two of them are let off and what happens basically is they're all condemned by the court but their their sort of punishment is then reverted to parliament for ultimate decision making uh, and parliament basically um, votes that three of them are going to die and two of them, uh, the votes turn in their favor. One of them by just one vote by the speaker's vote. Wow! Um, who's an old and, and, mate? Who's an old and Ted, mate of the-, <laughs> Ted, the, the. The
1: key thing that you you said there was that Charles I does not recognise the court. Yes, and 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 that essentially is the key because if he does recognise the legitimacy of the court, then he is destroying the ideological basis for the kind of monarchy that he's always upheld. I mean, is that basically the issue for him?
2: Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, he's got very good grounds. His position is a very strong one um, uh, in in terms of the the strategy that he uses. I should also say it's a strategy that is anticipated as well. So um, there's a, there's a Royalist newsletter writer, Marchment Nedham, who, who predicts in his manuscript newsletters that what's going to happen is the king is not going to recognise the court. He won't plead and he'll be found guilty uh, pro-confesso um, as if he had confessed. But what will happen is that the king is not going to be executed. Instead, the kind of sword will be kind of hanging over his head. Um, and this will be used as a way of getting the king to neg- you know, to the negotiating table to agree to all the things that... But the king um, doesn't, doesn't do. the long But run. the king won't do that, yes. Yeah. So he's, he is a martyr to that so. degree. <laughs> and as Charles
0: said, at this point, so the winter of 1648, 1649, they're setting up the court. Um, does he have, I mean, this might sound a stupid question, does he have legal advice? I mean, is he meeting with people who are telling <laughs> him... How, his barrister. Discuss, yeah, discussing his strategy kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an an interesting question. It, I think the a- short answer, I think, not really, because he's by this point he's a very close prisoner. So you know, they they have finally learnt the lessons of you know sixteen forty six through to uh, late sixteen forty eight. Well, the king's been trying to escape multiple, multiple times and had various people passing intelligence to him. So by this point, he's a very close prisoner,
1: and he's still guarded by Thomas Harrison, isn't he?
2: Yes yeah, so we we don't have the same same situation as we get um with actually what happens in the trials in february uh forty nine where in fact we know that John Lilburn was helping to advise those royalist prisoners on their defence, and they're actually allowed uh, defence counsel. Because they, they recognize the courts. They're actually allowed, um, some very high status lawyers. Matthew Hale, uh, works on behalf of, um, those royalist prisoners. Doesn't do them any good at the end of the day, but you know, they have, (laughs) they have a lot of, they have a lot of good legal advice. Um, so this is something that, yeah, I think, you know, we have to give a lot of credit to the king himself in terms of how he constructs his defense. So it is an impressive defense.
1: So, so, so the king has, has been brought over from Carisbrook to yep. uh, a castle on the Solent and then he's he's brought up by Major Harrison
2: yes. to Windsor is that right yes
1: and he's under close guard is is there um so in I, I'm sure we'll talk about um Louis Sixteenth and the French Revolution towards the end of this but is is there um is there a kind of an attempt to remind him of how far he's fallen is there a kind of Republican tinge to his treatment is he still treated as God's anointed by the people who are guarding him
2: he is treated with respect, but there's a definite kind of trimming down of, um, the amount of kind of, well, the pe- number of people who can attend him, um, the ceremonial is much reduced, um, so, so there is a definite kind of diminution of, 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 of all of the sort of trappings of royalty, um, uh, by the time he's sort of getting to, 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 to Windsor. And how do they decide where, because there is talk, isn't there, that they might hold the trial at
1: Windsor. But in the end, they decide to hold it in Whitehall. And so what's the thinking about where the location should be for the trial?
2: Well, I think, you know, the the, the thinking about... So the trial takes place in Westminster Hall, um, in the Palace of Westminster. And and if anybody's been into Westminster Hall, it's a huge space. It's this this magnificent medieval hall. Um, William Rufus. uh, Yes, yeah. Uh, And um, in in terms of, you know... uh, the choice of that as a venue, it's a couple of things. One, they want this to be a very public trial. And Harrison actually says uh, to the king, you know, this I'm sure this wasn't meant to be reassuring, but the king has a conversation with Harrison whilst they're, you know, en route towards Windsor. Um And Harrison assures him that they're not going to just sort of murder him or kick him down the stairs, but instead that he will be proceeded against in a manner in which the world can witness um, and So this is what they want. They want something that's very, very public. Uh, and Westminster Hall can accommodate thousands of spectators. Um, the other thing is it's also the site where great state trials have taken place before. So the gunpowder plotters are arraigned in Westminster Hall. It's also the site of key courts, King's Bench, Chancery take place there. So they're trying to say something about this as being kind of a seat of justice as well. Um sorry are, are there symbols of of royal authority in the in
1: in Westminster Hall
2: well not, that, that not have to by kind the, of be
1: taken down or yeah well, you, by know, the time, you know
2: when when they you know as they set it up for the trial and this is one of the other significant things about you know what uh you know what else is going on here, and that it 's maybe not just a a bad king who's being tried is that um you can 't see it with my in the way that it 's been cropped my wonderful uh virtual background here but <laughs> when they when they set the court up they they also uh put up a new coat of arms, which is what becomes later the coat of arms of the English commonwealth, so you know it 's removing the raw coat of arms and instead we've got the, these arms of the Commonwealth, of the, of the Cross of St George and the Irish Heart. Now,
0: that is the end of today's episode, but tune in tomorrow when we'll have the next instalment, or alternatively, you could always join the Rest is History Club at restishistorypod.com and you'll get it straight away. We never miss a promotional opportunity. Anyway, for the time being, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him. <music>